0: John chapter 11 verse 45, let's hear God's word. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what he did, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation." had given orders that if anyone knew where he was he should let them know so that they might arrest him i think it was gk chesterton who said that the reason why angels can fly is because they take themselves lightly ever a funny man gk chesterton with a lot of insight Sometimes the most important, the most profound things need to be taken, if not lightly, at least with a touch of irony. Irony, of course, is the um, verbal way of expressing yourself that gives a surprise at the end. One example of irony is of uh, two rugby players who went to an all-you-can-eat restaurant only to find that they were banned from coming back for eating too much. This is irony. But irony can be meaningful as well as verbal or situational, as well as funny. It can be deeply profound. And John's gospel loves to use irony. And there is no greater example in the whole of John's gospel than the use use of irony than in this passage we're looking at this morning. In many ways, the cross itself is a statement of huge irony. And this situation that we're looking at this morning... Opens up one of the most difficult questions I think we all face, namely the question of suffering, and more specifically, the question of suffering when we're faced with being someone who follows Jesus and yet also suffers, or being someone who considers themselves at least a good person, quote unquote, a nice person, someone who's suffering beyond their deserts, beyond what they deserve, and where is God when that kind of thing happens? This, of course, must have been the question that the disciples were wrestling with when they discovered that the council of the Jews, that is the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, the supreme council of their nation, the supreme court, had formally, in session, made a resolution to kill Jesus. Surely they would have been thinking, what on earth is God up to? And you get the sense of that when they gather together, the early church gathers together Jesus with his disciples. And of course John is telling this story, Passover is coming, we know how this story is going to end. But put yourself for a moment in the situation of those early disciples who did not know how it was going to end. Surely they would have been asking, what on earth is God up to? And that is a question of course that many of us ask in our own lives. Whether it's something personal or individual, cancer or a depression or a discouragement or being fired from your position at work for doing the right thing or whether it's all the challenges that many of us as Christians are wondering about that's going on in our society today when you find someone who is being oppressed or even fired for standing up for sexual morality, biblical sexual morality, or someone else who's criticized online for having a biblical opinion about life and when life begins in the womb and all these things that we face as Christians these days. This sense that there is opposition to the cause of Jesus even in the West, even in America and certainly around the world where there have been more martyrs for the cause of Christ in the last hundred years than all the previous centuries put together. And where is God then and what is he up to? And why does he allow these things to take place? Why does he allow his uh, children to suffer even when they are doing what is right, even when they are Defending the cause of Christ. Why? Surely God is sovereign. Surely he can stop that. Surely he does not need to allow that to happen. So this is the question I think the disciples must have been wrestling with. And so that we understand it, John, the author of this gospel, as it were, raises his hand in the middle of the narrative, in the middle of the story, to give us a lens through which to interpret this event and similar events. It is, as it were, an ironic lens. You'll find it right there in the middle of the passage in verses 51 and 52. He says there, talking about Caiaphas, the high priest, he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and not only for that nation, but also for all the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So there's Caiaphas thinking In the Supreme Court, that he's come up with the perfect solution to his, as it were, Jesus problem. He's going to kill Jesus. That's the right thing to do. But actually, unknowingly, unawares, he's prophesying, or indeed preaching, in that same Supreme Court the very heart of the Christian message. And what I want to show us today is that this is how God worked and this is indeed how God works. I want you to think with me about a few things. I want you to think with me first about the foolish blindness of those who oppose God, for it is foolish blindness and we need to pray for those who do oppose God, pray that their eyes will be opened, I want you to think with me realistically, nonetheless, about the malevolent intent of the battle that we are immersed in in this world and to be realistic about that. But then, finally, I want to think with you about the power of the cross and apply that to our own individual lives. Think with me first about the blindness of those who oppose God. Look with me in verse 47. It is so ironic verse 47 what are we accomplishing here is this man performing miraculous signs well these are people who believe in miracles these are people nonetheless who accept miracles but nonetheless it's a problem for them how blind how how ironic These are people who are praying that God would intervene in their lives and do something wonderful and save them and bring back the uh, Messiah and rescue them from the Romans. These are people who believe in miracles and yet here is a man, Jesus, who is doing miracles and this is a problem for them. Note with me, they do not deny that the miracles took place. They do not seek to discredit the miraculous in this instance. They've come to the realization after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead that there's nothing more they can say about the fact that Jesus is doing these miracles and so it is a significant problem for them. How foolish, how blind. Have you ever uh, in your conversations with a non-Christian had someone say to you that they would believe if only God would give them a sign? Well, don't be fooled. Well, God can and does certainly graciously give us signs and does do miracles that we might believe. And indeed, in John's gospel, that's exactly what Jesus does. But the signs themselves will not persuade someone to believe if they do not want to believe. And God indeed has given you all the signs that you need, my dear friend. The very church that you are sitting in the very preacher you're listening to, the very sunlight outside, the very spring that you enjoy, all these, if God would open your eyes, would be more than enough signs for you to believe. Of course, Jesus' signs are very specific. I opened the eyes and the man born blind gave Lazarus new life, turned Water into wine. These signs had happened, but they must believe. But they do not. In fact, they continue in verse 48 in their ironic opposition. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. See, for them it's about power. They are concerned that if people believe in Jesus... Their mediating role between the authority of Rome and the rule over these religious people, they as the religious ruling council of Israel, if everyone believes in Jesus, they would no longer be necessary. That the Romans would come and take both our place, probably meaning the temple, and the nation, that is God's people, from them. They are very frightened. They wish to hold on to their power. Jesus is a threat, but Jesus is not a threat in that regard. He did not come to rule as a king like Caesar with political power. His kingdom was not of this world, but they cannot see it. It is so ironic. Perhaps you've come across that kind of irony in your own life. Someone who takes the very loving thing that you do, the very merciful thing that you do, And sees it as a problem, a danger. So often this is the case. I love the story, you're probably familiar with it, when Queen Mary, Queen of Scotland, was so frightened of the work of the gospel of the Christian leader John Knox that she said she feared his prayers more than all the armies of Europe. She feared his prayers. It's prayers, a man on his knees. The opposition is so ironic. But though it is so ironic, and as we'll see in a moment, God overcomes it and wins even his enemies to the cause of Christ through the cross of Christ, even though there is this glorious victory for all who will believe, including for you this morning, my dear friend, even though that is the case, we must be realistic About the malevolent intent here. I mean, the title I gave this sermon is one of the most dramatic titles I've given for a long time Killing Jesus. Perhaps only to be beaten by the title I gave when I preached through the book of Ruth here Girl Power. Killing Jesus. But that, of course, is exactly what Caiaphas is trying to do. And if truth be told, if people today could do that, there are some who would. There are people who hate God. Caiaphas here is trying to kill God. If to kill a king is regicide, to kill a brother is fratricide, he wants deicide. But when I say there are some who want to kill God, let us be honest, is that not us all? Don't we actually wish sometimes that God would just leave us alone? And isn't this the heart of the rebellion, of the very nature of sin? that goes right back to the Garden of Eden. We don't want God. If we could kill Him, we would. God be praised. While there have been more martyrs in the last hundred years than any other time in church history, there are many people who are peaceable towards Christian things. And also, of course, we, though we are aware there will be opposition for the cause of Christ, should not go out seeking opposition. Uh, you know, be wise, gracious, prudent, careful, as innocent as doves, as canny as snakes, as Jesus said. Avoid conflict when you can. As far as it is in your power, live at peace with all people. You know, it, it, if you're being a pain in the neck and you get persecuted, you're not being persecuted for being a Christian, you're being persecuted for being a pain in the neck. But again, we need to be realistic about the forces of evil in this world. We are in a fight the fight of the faith, it's a spiritual warfare. But a fight it still is. The uh, famous Puritan William Gurnall wrote a huge volume on spiritual warfare called The Christian in Complete Armor. If you're someone who likes to publish books and you want to summarize one and find a way to summarize that down to 50 pages, it's about 400 pages and it's original, so... But if it could be summarized in a more accessible form today, it is a great and important read. At one point he said this, Christians should sleep in their spiritual armor. There is a constant battle. Christian, put on the armor of God each day, helmet of salvation, shield of faith, breastplate of righteousness. Sometimes when I'm going to an important meeting or I'm about to pray, I will consciously, as it were, pray on the armor of God. It's true, the belt of truth. I need to be ready to share the gospel, the, the, the feet shod with the redness that comes from the gospel of peace. I need to be able to use the Bible, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions to consciously put on the armor of God, for there is a real spiritual battle Let us not be lulled into a false sense of security, Wheaton, because you live in such a nice place, you feel like you're already in heaven. You're not. You're in the trenches. There's a spiritual battle at work right now. Heaven and hell stand open as I preach. Depending on the choices you're making this morning, your destiny could be determined one way or the other. All these great Christian institutions in Chicago, they will not last forever. They're not faithful. They lose sight of the gospel and give in to the various liberalizing tendencies that there are in theology today. These are real spiritual dynamics at work. We must awake. We must be wary to be on our guard, to watch and pray. Caiaphas, in the Supreme Court of Israel, among religious authorities and religious rulers made a motion to kill Jesus. Even religious institutions are not safe. I've been shocked recently to read of some of the things that have taken place in some of the great religious institutions of this country among people in authority. There's a real spiritual battle at work. Put on the armor of God, therefore. But while it's essential that we are realistic about things, these things, it is, it is so much more important that we spend time immersing ourselves, our hearts, our minds, our feeling, our, our thinking in the truth of this ironic power of the cross here. Look with me again at verse 51. He did not say this on his own. But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, not only for that nation, but also for all, all the scattered children of God. Now, just think with me about this. Caiaphas, who is making a formal resolution in the Supreme Court of the country to kill Jesus, As he makes that resolution, and as it were, it is recorded in the minutes of the Supreme Court. As he does so, he prophesies or preaches. He declares the truth of the gospel in a more accurate way than many theologians have done over the centuries of the church. What does he say? Verse 50. You don't realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Well, that's the gospel. Theologians call it substitutionary atonement. The cross of Jesus is not merely an example. Even Caiaphas preached better than that. I almost blush to clarify it here at Cottage Church, a church that's had 150 years of faithful gospel teaching. But if you're anything like me, you too easily forget it. God made you to be in a relationship of loving obedience. But we have all rebelled against God and the sentence for that rebellion is death. We're under the sentence of the wrath of God. It may seem like a harsh crime, but the sentence for our crimes is impacted by the one that we offend against. If you got into a fight in Starbucks with a friend and you broke his nose, you might be arrested for a minor misdemeanor. But imagine instead in that fight you pick up a baby and punch that newborn in the face. Same amount of power, same fist, but against a newborn baby. It's a horrific thought. And then imagine, but don't just imagine, realize that our rebellion is not simply against another human being. Our rebellion is against the source of all good, against life and love himself. You, sinner have rebelled against life. Is it any wonder the sentence is death? And God is just. He must declare that sentence, that just sentence. But God in his nature is not only a God of justice, he is also a God of love. What is the solution to this divine conundrum of justice and love, a a creation that He loves who is in rebellion against Him and therefore demands justice? What is God's solution? The only possible solution is that God Himself becomes a part of His creation and takes the sentence of death in Himself. Or as Caiaphas put it, one man die for the people. How ironic. (laughs) He got it right. They planned it for evil, but God planned it for good. You crucified him, but God raised him to new life. This was done for evil, but God did it for good. The very words that Caiaphas spoke were unknowingly a more accurate preaching of the gospel of God than you might have heard over some hundreds of years of the Christian church. Christ died for you in your place. Divine irony, (laughs) sweet gospel irony. Look at it with me like this. The very things you fear, the very suffering that you cannot explain, The very attacks on the Christian church, well, as the ancient Christian theologian Tertullian rightly said, the blood of the martyrs is the seedbed of the church. How can you defeat God? He's sovereign, of course not. How can you put to death the man who has just recently raised Lazarus from the dead? Think of the irony. But isn't this what we're all like? We're like Jacob wrestling with God. And God, as it were, <coughs> judo throws us. He takes that wrestling and establishes us as his child, humble. And now saved and joyful and fully His, O glorious, sweet, divine irony, the cross meant to kill becomes the life of God for all who will believe. The very harsh things that you fear, the very sufferings that you cannot explain, the very evil that so troubles your prayerful conscience when you look at the world, those very things, God and His sovereignty works together together to be the place of salvation. I've seen it in my own life. I was asked at a conference recently when I was um, speaking there about expository preaching, which is what we do here at College Church, and why I thought it was important and all the rest. And I told this story, I remember some years ago, not here, in another church, um, someone Found one of those, you know, the church directory things, and went to the huge effort of copying down every single um, name and address in the church directory, and mailed to everyone in the church directory a letter. A letter accusing the leadership of all sorts of things that were completely untrue, trying to undermine the work of the gospel. Of course, we were, this was a big deal. Of course, the intent was to scare people away, shut down the work of the gospel. Do you know what happened that Sunday? We had not had so many people in church that Sunday the rest of the year. They felt so bad for us. They wanted to come and commiserate with us. And do you also know what? The text That I had already announced for that Sunday, I don't remember precisely which passage in the Bible it was, but the essence of that text that I had already announced that Sunday was a call for us to love our enemies. This, this is the way God so often works. Think in church history, the great Church of England martyrs, Latimer and Ridley, about to be burnt at the stake. Play the man, Master Ridley, we this day shall light such a candle, as I pray, by God's grace will never be put out, and so it has been true. To this day, the ones that they tried to kill became the source of gospel fire throughout the country. You don't need to fear opposition. You don't need to fear suffering. You, if you are opposing God, need to fear. For he is sovereign. And not only is he sovereign, he takes the very evil that you intend, the very sins that you wish you did not commit. He takes those things and he turns them to a great salvation. You planned it for evil. God planned it for good. The saving of many lives. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord God, we often wonder at the mystery of the cross. There are so many profound things about the the atonement, and yet, Lord, there is another aspect that we sometimes under-emphasize, and that is the power of the cross. Lord, I pray that this morning, by the power of the cross, you would save some. Would you grant faith to Caiaphas? Here. Lord, I pray by the power of the cross that You would encourage some that their suffering is not forgotten, not pointless, but is the very way You will bring, out, bring about a great salvation, that we are deliberately and purposefully jars of clay that the treasure might be revealed within. Lord, I pray that you would turn the opposition that some perhaps here face, even at work today, this week, next month, and use those very opportunities to witness to you that the blood of the martyrs might be the seabed of the church that there might be a whole massive new awakening and renewal and revival in this country. Grant us faithfulness. Grant us eyes to see. And would you, Lord Jesus, by the power of the cross, do just this? For we ask it for Jesus' glory. Amen.